Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about infertility. Today we're going to be talking about a subject that is so important and quite frankly just not talked about or not talked about enough, that's for sure, or not talked about enough with uh, people outside of your your partner, let's put it that way. The topic, enough teasing here, the topic is the impact of fertility treatment on sexual health. Um, how does fertility treatment affect some of your most intimate relationships? And can quite frankly, can it just spoil your enjoyment of sex? You talk to patients and they're going to have, uh, most of them will have a very specific, very definite feeling about this. Let me start by telling you that you're going to be noticing some differences in sound. Uh, uh, if you are a regular listener, you know that uh, we have been making huge improvements in our sound quality, and we are really proud of that. Uh, please note also our new cover art, our new snazzy look. Uh, but today's show is going to be different. Uh, the sound is going to be slightly different. One, I'm not in my regular studio, and I don't have my uh, my earphones, so and these, quite frankly, just aren't as good. So you're going to notice a difference there. But also, this is a re-air of a show we did uh, a year or so ago. Uh, but we wanted to bring it back because it is a topic we get a lot of questions on. And the guests are just terrific. Today, we're going to be talking with uh, Dr. Jody Madera. She's a professor at Indiana University Bloomington and an expert on law, medicine, and bioethics and a researcher on the impact of fertility treatment on sexual health. She's also the author of a book called Taking Baby Steps, How Patients and Fertility Clinics Collaborate in Conception. Uh, we'll also be talking with Dr. Beth McAvee. She is a reproductive endocrinologist at RMA of New York. And last but certainly not least, we'll be talking with Deborah Unger. She is a therapist uh, for over 20 years that specializes in the treatment of couples with infertility. So without further ado, let me bring you this show. As I said, I think you are really going to enjoy it. I, I wanted to begin with some quotes um, because I think that they capture so well the the poignancy and some of the struggles, the very real struggles that a lot of women have with sex and, and, and intimacy uh, after uh, infertility or during treatment of infertility. Here is one. Infertility and infertility treatment ruined sex for me. I no longer have intercourse because of the pain that I think is probably psychosomatic. I did physical therapy for the pain, but it never went away. I also have pain during orgasm now. I had a really enjoyable sex life before infertility, so it's a shame, but I haven't been able to recover. It's been about five years like this. The directive to have sex every day, which we were told to do by a fertility doctor, plus miscarriages during that period probably contributed to a feeling like a failure and really just being disgusted by sex. I also, have, I also feel like infertility changed my relationship to feeling feminine and to my gender for a period of time. This has gotten much better over time, but it hasn't totally healed. Another one, I think having sex is now a reminder in a way that my body doesn't function, and I find sex depressing. I have certainly worked on this in therapy, but it's also hard to find a good therapist who really understands infertility. I'm actually a therapist, and I find it hard to find one. <laughs> 
Uh, and then someone else who talked about uh, infertility treatment being a disaster for their sex life. And she said, had she known uh, that this might have been the impact uh, that it would have on her in her marriage, she would never have chosen to go down this path. So I think, I think that many women uh, have seen a change in their sexual health as a result of an infertility diagnosis or fertility treatment. But I think it would help to start by asking, and I'm going to direct this to you, Dr. Uh, McAvee. If, if people mm-hmm. with infertility are more prone in general to having less sexual desire, and I realize that, sex, that sexual desire is only one aspect of what we're going to be talking about, but is there, you know, is there a, are we blaming a diagnosis of infertility or its treatment when in fact it's really part of the underlying cause or something? Um, I mean, there are obviously several um, etiologies for infertility. One in particular that comes to mind that certainly could have a real organic reason for sexual dysfunction would be something like endometriosis. So endometriosis is a diagnosis that often is linked to infertility. Um, it is a condition when the endometrial tissue, so the lining with the, the glands within the lining of the uterus, actually leave the internal uh, portion of the uterus and, and go elsewhere. So they can, it can go to fallopian tubes, ovaries, rectum, bowel, large bowel, small bowel, the, the entire um, sort of sidewalls inside of the abdomen up to the liver and go to the lungs. They can go everywhere. But patients who have severe stage endometriosis often have quite significant pelvic pain. Um, so for the non-infertile patient, there's also there's often a lot of sexual dysfunction from the onset due to uh, dyspareunia, you know, pain with intercourse. Um, and so those patients certainly do have much higher rates of infertility at baseline. Um, so yes, you know, again, depending on the uh, etiology and diagnosis of infertility, it, it can be from the beginning. In general, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, I would say be, beyond the diagnosis of um, endometriosis, you know, women with ovarian reserve issues or male factor infertility, I would say not necessarily. Well, I was going to ask about um, um, uh, low ovarian reserves, which is sometimes called um, right. premature menopause. I mean, we certainly uh, have heard that that sexual desire changes, if if not uh, diminishes, uh, with menopause, sure. with right. a woman who has had uh, the begin uh, an early onset of menopause be experiencing some of that? Sure. I mean, it's, it, you know, we, we do see these patients rarely, you know, thankfully, but uh, so the term premature menopause, uh, sort of technically we've replaced that with the term primary ovarian insufficiency, but it's, it is a diagnosis of uh, essentially menopause prior to the age of 40. So it's actually in very young women. So in late 20s, mid 20s, or, you know, early 30s, mid 30s. Um, and essentially it's when there is no more, there are no more eggs remaining. Um, and so the female doesn't ovulate and then doesn't get a period. Those women experience menopause just like the average female who gets menopause at normal age in this country is around 50. Um, so there are symptoms um, due to low estrogen levels that can affect sexual health. So vaginal dryness is the big one. Um, again, dyspareunia or pain on you know pain with intercourse, hot flashes. So all of those typical vasomotor symptoms um, can affect, of course. Um, 
the uh, so yes, you know you you are correct. Yes, so in the in the unfortunate patient that's diagnosed with a premature you know failure of the ovary, we do see that. Okay, so now we know that there's some organic uh, reasons, but let's now talk about some of the um, impact on sexual health caused by fertility meds, the medication uh, that uh, uh, people are taking to treat their um, uh, their fertility. So I'm going to start with females. Um, how do like the standard uh, fertility meds affect sexual health? And let's start with what often let's start with the oral meds. People tend to think of them as you know baby meds or the are the you know the beginning the the, right. the more neutral, uh, not the big right. guns. Uh, you know we could right. argue that that is, is or is not necessarily a good uh, way to describe them. But let's start with uh, the, the two that we most often hear about are, are Clomid and Letrozole. So how do they Correct. affect sexual desire or sexual health? Right. So um, I will say letrozole is is more often a kinder drug. I I definitely think it has a less uh, significant side effect profile. Clomid is our old gold gold standard, though, so a lot of practitioners use that more over letrozole, uh, although perhaps a push in the field, you know, to switch that. Um, But so Clomid's, um, I would say that the most common side effects patients complain about are mood disturbance, headaches, and hot flashing. Um, We certainly know all of that can affect sexual health or desire, you know, to engage in sex. Um, Certainly mood disturbances for sure, and and we can speak about that. Um, And uh, and then physically also with repetitive Clomid use, patients often complain of also vaginal dryness. So I would say those are the four main things, but mo- most common is the mood disturbance and, and the hot flashing. Those are the two big ones. Um, okay. Yeah. And, right. and letrozole, so letrozole less than? Yeah, perhaps less. You know, it should not cause vaginal dryness. That's one of the benefits. It doesn't affect, you know, uterus also. Um, but uh, patients still often complain of hot flashes with letrozole, less, in, if just from my personal practice, less um, mood changes. Um, and then the other thing I should mention, actually, with Clomid, the other thing sometimes patients complain about is breast tenderness. Like, And, and so, again, trying to engage in uh, sort of normal, spontaneous sex, if your breasts are very tender, you may not want them touched. You know, it, it all goes together. Okay. Now, let's move to the medications uh, that uh, would be used primarily with IVF, but also with, uh, right. with IUI. So right. how, do, how does they impact? So typically, IVF medications are injection medications. They are injectable gonadotropins. That's what we call um, call them as a as a sort of you know general term. Um, and the idea for IVF medications is to purposely recruit or harvest as many eggs as we can in about a week's time in the safest manner as possible. Um, so instead of just making, let's say, one or two eggs like we would on Clomid or Letrozole when you're just doing oral pills for simple ovulation induction, when you move to IVF, we're purpose- purposely trying to get you know, 10 eggs, 12 eggs, 15 eggs, whatever your body's able to give. Um, so there are a lot more physical symptoms patients feel, and obviously the most common would be uh, a lot of pelvic pressure and bloating. Um, I will tell you as far as our recommendation for engaging in sex during an IVF cycle, the answer is actually no. 
So we actually say no intercourse during an IVF stimulation. Um, so, you know, patients really should not be engaging uh, for multiple reasons. Um, you know, there's actually, there's several reasons why, but one of them from uh, the ovarian stimulation side is that if the ovary itself is quite large, obviously there could be a lot of discomfort with sex. Their patients themselves are at risk of having something called a torsion, right? So twisting the ovary. So we just don't want a lot of physical activity. So we say no intercourse during and, and no exercising. So, um, well, you know, that, the when patients, you also yeah. might have yeah. multiple at that point, you have many, hopefully, many eggs Correct. that are fertile, and, and talk Correct. about a, a yep. risk for a large, uh, large order, <laughs> yes. multiple births. For gracious sakes, that's it's yeah. no other reason. Uh, right. Most of our challenge. cycles, right? But you're correct. Most of our cycles in today's day, we are we're freezing all of the embryos and and then doing the transfer in the following period when the patient is yeah. feeling much more normal and back down to to physiologic yeah. state. And we test a lot of embryos now. But you are 100% correct. There are some patients still doing fresh cycle, fresh transfer cycles. Um, and imagine if you go and you have 15, you know, uh, follicles that have retrieval and we harvest you know, 14, or, you know, you, you think you got them all and you didn't, and then they have intercourse, you're absolutely right, and you do a transfer, you can end up having having birth. And we've all seen that. I mean, I've seen it in practice, you know, several times, actually. So you're correct. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Something to be worried about. Now, now to, to move on to the male, what fertility medications are prescribed for male factor infertility, and how do they affect the sexual drive or sexual health in other ways? Right. So, um so two things that we think about, I mean, one is, you know, is there, uh, you know, does the male partner actually have erectile dysfunction, right? So actual inability to perform uh, sort of sexual act, you know, getting having an erection or penetrating the female um, or properly ejaculating. You know, so all of that is actually a very important part of the detailed history when you meet a couple. Um, there's actually a fair amount of um, erectile dysfunction out there. Uh, it's very important to ask if, the answer is yes. Obviously, an appropriate referral to a urologist, and specifically, if, if possible, and, and available in your area, um, a fertility urologist. Um, so there are urologists that special that are our counterparts and specialize in infertility and, and um, reproductive care. So um, if that's present, we refer. And then secondly, if there is notable uh, oligospermia, meaning decreased sperm count, significant. Uh, we would call that severe oligospermia on a semen analysis, meaning taking the you know sample from the male and analyzing it to see what the count of the sperm is. Um, we often will also refer. Now, if there's a if there is presence of severe oligospermia, um, the question is: Is it due to hypogonadism, meaning low testosterone levels? So, you know, uh, low testosterone that regulates um, sperm production. If it's low, it's going to be low. Um, and so for those particular men who are diagnosed with low testosterone in the setting of low sperm count, the urologist actually will give them Clomid. So they will give the male partners oral Clomid, which does a very nice job of raising endogenous or internal testosterone levels with the hope that it helps to regenerate higher counts. Um, it's fascinating, isn't it? You, you know, don't, but... But we've also heard reports, and again, these are anecdotal, so yeah. I'd like to get your input, that uh, uh, that Clomid uh, decreases a male's sex drive uh, and makes it harder to perform or at least 
get in the mood. Um, is, right. there, is that just anecdotal or is that actually been supported by evidence? You know, I actually, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I would probably well, defer to, to my counterpart, yeah. Dr. Barhama, from that regard. I would say at that point, if a, if a man is diagnosed with severe oligospermia, they're under the care of the urologist. Um, you know, I think that it's probably multifactorial at that point. I wouldn't be surprised, though. Clomid, again, Clomid for females has a significant side effect profile. I would think it would do the same for the male. Um, yeah. So it's if, I wouldn't be surprised. Of, well, yeah, I wouldn't either, just hearing that. You know, and it's interesting when we think of fertility meds, it's almost universal that people think, oh, it's just Clomid. It's like that's the, and uh, right. you know, the beginning. and. And so many women find Clomid harder to handle than the injectable gonadotropins. I mean, it's one of those interesting, um, not right. all, I'm not going to say that one. All right. Now, we've talked some about the the physiology of infertility and how that can, and, and as well as the treatment, and how that can physically affect your uh, sexual health and your sexual desire. But now I want to move into the emotional realm and the mm-hmm. emotional impact. When we were having this discussion, Creating a Family has a uh, very large online support group. It's a closed group, uh, which if anybody's interested, you can. we'd love to have you join us. It's uh, on Facebook, a closed group, so you have to request to join. Go to uh, Creating a Family, slash, I mean, I'm sorry, <laughs> go to Facebook.com slash groups slash Creating a Family. We'd love to have you join us. Anyway, we were having a um, a a great discussion on this exact topic uh, last week, I guess it was, or maybe the week before. And a couple of words came up over and over. I mean, it was almost uncanny how often they came up. Um, uh, talking about uh, the question was, how did uh, infertility treatment impact your sex life? Um, the, uh, it became a chore. It came up over and over again. Um, mm-hmm. Killed the romance. Another thing that came up. Mm-hmm. Uh, an interesting one that sex feels pointless now uh it's just and it's it all those three things came up so often deborah unger i wanted to uh get you involved now since you're often treating patients and couples who are experiencing some of this are uh how common is it for uh women and men uh i must say in our discussion it was almost uh, predominantly well it was predominantly women uh, but uh, but I'm without a doubt. But many of them were speaking on behalf of their husbands. So anyway, let's talk about that. How common is it to feel like there is no joy in uh, in our bedroom anymore because now all of a sudden it's just work? Is that a common response? Well, thank you for having me on the show. And um, yes, I think I would say that that is something I would I probably hear across the board. That couples, and like you said, a lot of times it might just be the woman that decides to come in for counseling, will say that this is impacting our sex life. And as we all know, going through any type of infertility treatment enhances our stress level. So mm-hmm. that's going to have an impact on how we connect with our partner, how we feel about ourselves, our body. Um, so, yeah, I do see that across the board. Um, and I say yeah, that but, because I would like ahead. to help people understand, you know, that it's it's a normal response. And then when we know that it's a normal response, that can become sort of a starting point for where we can address other issues that are coming into play. One of the things that becomes 
um, I was really glad you mentioned stress um, because heaven only knows uh, infertility and infertility treatment are stressful. And, and we, like you say, we all know that stress uh, can put a kibosh on desire uh, mm-hmm. and uh, as well as the timing and everything else. Um, one of the other things that's, uh, that I thought was, it was interesting that came up uh, was the fact that oftentimes infertility makes us feel like failures. And one woman had said it really interestingly. She said, we've had at least 48 cycles of trying that failed. That's a lot of grief tied to sex. You know, and, and, and by yeah. cycles, I don't think she means 48 IVF cycles. I, I really don't know, but I'm assuming she means that they've been trying for 48 months. Mm-hmm. And so that, you know, cycle, a, a monthly cycle. And, and, and I thought that was so poignant. That's a lot of grief tied up to sex. That's powerful. Absolutely. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, and she's right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So, and and you already addressed that by um, starting. A lot of times, couples do start with clomid, and then they move into the injectable cycles, and then they might end up in the IVF cycles. So, that's really um, very easy to imagine. And actually, pre-clomid, they might have had time to intercourse. So, I, I mean, I see couples that could have been in treatment or trying for, let's say, going back three or four years. That would be a lot of grief. And unfortunately, it becomes compounded grief when they don't seek help at an earlier stage and start addressing some of that, those issues, those disappointments, the, everything that goes along with trying and not succeeding. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, trying. And, and let's go back and, and talk just briefly about the impact of something as as seemingly benign as time cycles. Dr. McAvee, let me bring you in and say, all right, at, at what point are, are you recommending uh, time cycles and at what point does, in what people are seeking treatment, does that become less of an issue, if ever? So it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think there's been a transition maybe because of this concept of uh, the iPhone. You know, I, I sometimes sort of age myself. You know, when I started, in, mm-hmm. I'm not that old, but when I started medicine, the iPhone didn't exist. So patients come into the office now. It's very different than it was, you know, 10 years ago. They come in with an entire year's worth of tracking on apps. You know, the typical yep. infertility patient mm-hmm. isn't just walking in saying, I don't know where my cycle is. They're coming in with literally 12 months of, like, here are the days that I was ovulating, you know, based on this sophisticated mm-hmm. app or ovulation sticks. Um, so the real truth of the matter is usually when they come to our office, unless it's something, you know, different, you know, erectile dysfunction or the cycle is completely off, um, you know, they have been timed. You know, they have already been doing timed cycles. Um, so, you know, for the patient that gets a period every month, they're, they're, they've are they been doing their time cycles, you know, for 6 to 12 months before they come in. So the real truth is, unless it's just a simple erectile dysfunction uh, with the male partner and we just want to do natural cycle timed, you know, uh, let's say, uh, you know, IUIs or something along that, that line, usually patients are going into some sort of medicated cycle. Um and yeah. Clomid would be a, or any of them, sorry, I should say, the oral meds, there is time Correct. intercourse associated with that. Right. So we would either recommend timed intercourse or IUI, which is intrauterine insemination. 
Okay. Um, yeah. So for let's the young some... female, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Well, no, that's okay. I was gonna say, well, let's talk some about the um, uh, the emotional impact of of not the emotional. Let me say the the impact on sexual health. Certainly, spontaneity uh, on right. timed intercourse. And Deborah, I want to get your thoughts on this. And and I think in particular, let's huh. let's take this past somebody who. I mean, let's keep in mind. I must put it this way. Let's keep in mind that most of the people that we're talking about have been doing timed intercourse for at least a year. Uh, some, right, yeah. I mean, if they're older, they would have uh, hopefully not uh, had, would have taken our advice and gotten treatment. You know, before that period of time, right. Right. it's a real push for us. But, uh, but so it's it's the. Uh, I think it's important for those who have not experienced to understand that this is not a matter of, oh, okay, we need to, you know, we're going to have to make certain that we have sex over these two days in this particular month. It's gone beyond that. It's been month after month after month that people are doing this. Yeah, exactly. So why does why does timing? Uh, why would that alone have a uh, make somebody? Uh, feel uh, bad about sex? Well, I think that, you know, nobody really wants to feel pressure around having sex. It's just not a way that we tend to approach that. And it's not something that, you know, to, a couple comes together and they want to enjoy their sex life. And anything that imposes additional pressure around that can really just have a natural you know, a natural diminishing of your drive. Um, it can exacerbate anxiety, create just um, discomfort uh, around the topic. So I think it's just really important to for couples that are going through, you know, whatever stage they're at in their infertility treatment to try to step away from that and really look more into their relationship and how they're connecting, how they're communicating around these issues. And they almost need to kind of rebuild an understanding about intimacy between them as a couple and sort of acknowledging, you know, we are dealing with all of these other issues and kind of coming together around that. Does that make sense? To take yeah. the pressure off, to take, you know, and to revisit the relationship, communicating, supporting each other through this difficult time, and then through that, you're rebuilding a different type of intimacy that can help us come to help couples come together and enjoy sex again. And how do you go about rebuilding your idea of of intimacy when when that's something that's usually that has been so uh, it's been such a integral. part of your <laughs> integral exactly. integral uh, yeah. from the very mm-hmm. beginning usually. Yes. Um, well, I think it's. I do a lot of psychoeducational work with couples because, again, whenever anybody kind of bumps up against infertility, we're all caught off guard. I don't think anyone is ever prepared for this. And it's sort of this thing that we run into, and it, it can often spiral. Um, we don't see it coming. We don't understand it. So we're a lot of times you know, as as you know, looking to the Internet, trying to educate ourselves on these issues. Um, but often couples, when they first bump in, up against this, they don't have the information they need, and it becomes, you know, a lot of fear comes um, to play, comes into play. So oh, 
Yeah. <laughs> um, when I see couples, I try when they finally get to me, you know, they've been in it for a while, just like when they get to a reproductive endocrinologist, they've been in it for a while, they've been alone, they've been scared. And so really talking with people about expectations and, and helping to normalize what they're going through and that, yes, this is a scary time. Yes, there's a lot of information out there. It can be overwhelming. Um, you're Stress response is normal, um, and when we don't know what we're going to face, anxiety comes into play, and just helping couples understand that what they're going through really is a normal response, they can yeah. begin to turn to each other for support in a new way. You know, it's the funny, in our thing, discussion, yeah. this second in our discussion online, it was so clear that, that just knowing that others were experiencing or had experienced this was so powerful, and it was it was nice to see yeah. at some point there was almost some humor. You know, somebody was typing in, you know, oh, what are you talking about? What is this sex life thing you're mm-hmm. talking about? Who has that? You know, so it it, yeah. it just normalized it, and normalization makes you feel like okay, I'm not alone in this, and and I can cope with this, exactly. or I can conquer yeah. this, or uh, and, mm-hmm. and one of the things that I thought about when you spoke is that. Uh, earlier, uh, when Dr. McAdee was, was speaking, um, uh, she said that you'd be surprised at how common erectile dysfunction is. Well, you know, there is, I think, for a lot of men, there is the uh, performance failure. You know, I mean, a fear of performance failure. I'm not going to be able uh, to maintain an erection. This is the most important day of the month. It's either now or never. And <laughs> yeah. God, she's going Aww. to be so yeah. sad. If we don't do mm-hmm. it, she'll blame me, you know. I mean, and talk about yeah. a buzzkill, but I mean, that that makes it really hard. So, uh, first right. of all, let me ask uh, Dr. McAdee, when you're seeing these people in your office, probably before uh, Deborah Unger is seeing them in her practice or maybe at the same time, right. uh, is there anything you can say or, or to help people take some of the focus off of the um the the immediacy of performance at this moment you got to you know do it and you know forget about enjoyment or whatever just do it type of thing right um i mean it's a hard one cuz if it's true if it's true ed it's it's true ed um i mean we always make very you know sort of contingent backup plans so i if i suspect that there is an issue i again you sort of try to not to make try not to make it a big deal but you'll say um you know, maybe it's best over the next few weeks at a time that's good for you, not a specific day. You know, you could give a sperm sample and we could freeze it so that perhaps on the day of that we need it, if there is an issue, it's, then we have what we need. You know, so th- there are ways yeah, that you can yeah. take a lot of mm-hmm. the pressure off. And that sometimes works actually quite nice. So if there's any, and, and so often the patients, oh, yes, that sounds great. And then just that, knowing that there is a backup plan, yeah. we always try for a fresh sample. If it doesn't work, not a big deal. We have what we need. So it does take a lot of the pressure off. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Anything we can do. Deborah, other ideas that can uh Take the pressure off of the of the guy, especially if they're uh, having uh, erectile uh, inadequacies, if not total dysfunction. Well, I I wouldn't say that it's more the male. I think women also feel very uncomfortable at times. But either with either partner, if they are feeling that pressure, again, I would kind of pull it back 
and talk more about what they're dealing with emotionally in the relationship and how they can come together and support each other better through this very challenging time. Um, I just, I can't say enough about that support that couples really need and deserve when they're going through all of this information gathering and trying to figure out how to navigate all the different treatment options. And that um, the other thing I wanted to bring up, though, is thinking about when I, when I say that couples need support, a lot of times men and women have very different emotional responses to the treatment. And um, I see a lot more women in my practice than I see men. But when women... Um, when women and men come in together as a couple, the woman tends to be um, express her concern and worries more readily, whereas the male partner comes in and is trying to be strong and supportive mm-hmm. of her emotional response. So he's repressing his own fears, which could translate into some erectile issues when it comes to performance anxiety. But if mm-hmm. a man is coming in, a husband, in this strong, I am here to support her no matter what she goes through role, and she is in this role of worrying, then I, a lot of times couples sort of, I see them spiraling away from each other because she's worrying more for the two of them. She's doing all the worrying <laughs> in the relationship. He's doing yep. all of the caretaking. And mm-hmm. so then they spiral away from one another. Um, I try to talk about that dynamic because I see it so often in my practice. And I ask that maybe he, um, the male partner bec- um, considers being more open about his concerns. And I think that when that can happen, it actually comforts the female partner in a way that might allay her worries more than him saying, it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay, I'm here, I'm strong for you. Now mm-hmm. it's, we can, I, I'm using my hands, which I can't show you on the radio, but <laughs> where they spiral up and down. The woman is spiraling up, the man is spiraling away in a downward place. But when he can share his concerns, he can come up to where she's closer to where she is and she can come down from that role of warrior for the two of them. And that in and of itself helps them connect in a much deeper way that might that support a better relationship. Yeah. You know, in the yeah, absolutely. You are listening to Creating a Family, talk about infertility and adoption. And today we are talking about the impact of infertility and infertility treatment on sexual health. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, and we do have a lot of resources, could not happen without the generous support of our partners who believe in our mission of of providing unbiased, medically accurate information to the patient community. One of our great sponsors is Reproductive Medicine Associates of New York. They are a full-service fertility center specializing in in vitro fertilization, egg donation, egg and embryo freezing, LGBTQ family building, reproductive surgeries, and male reproductive medicine. Highly individualized patient care is offered through 13 reproductive endocrinologists and fertility specialists, as well as a urologist and their support team. And we thank them for their support. I want to bring in now Dr. Jody Madera. She is a professor at Indiana University at Bloomington. She is an expert on law and medicine and bioethics and a researcher on the impact of fertility treatment on sexual health. 
and she is the author of an upcoming book that will be uh, published this year, Taking Baby Steps, How Patients and Fertility Clinics Collaborate in Conception. I wanted to bring Dr. Madera in now to talk with us some about her research on the impact of fertility treatment on health. And uh, she is having to call from a cell phone, so we're keeping our fingers crossed uh, as to the quality. So, Dr. Madera, can you tell us some about your uh, research on this uh, as to how fertility treatment impacts kind of generally uh, sexual health? Uh, yes. Oh, we've got it. Let's see. Uh, let's try. And we're going to try to give this a go. I think your, our connection is not terribly good, but let's give it a try. And if I interrupt, it's because we're not, uh, the, the reception is just not good enough to continue. But let's give it a try. Yeah, I think we're going to have to try okay, no, one more time. Okay. Yeah, okay. Hello? Hello? Yeah. Now you're sounding much better. Okay. Yes, go ahead. Yes, okay. So um, actually the issue of infertility affecting um, reproduction actually starts even before they begin treatment. I think it's often compounded by the time they start treatment, and it's especially compounded if they don't seek treatment in a timely manner. So what happens is, People try and they don't anticipate a problem, but nonetheless have trouble. And it becomes something which they might not know a lot about. Um, they might not know how to work through it. They might feel weird talking to friends about reproductive issues after, especially after these friends have children already and it was effortless. Uh, these are very private matters. Um, and men in particular might not want their wives to disclose um, that mm -hmm. he's having. Uh, perhaps doubts uh, he might be having trouble getting an erection uh, because they're just trying so hard. They might not know even the time of the month that they're fertile. And so it's, I think it's a lot of it stems from a lack of knowledge. I think you may be right. And, you know, one of the interesting things that came up in um, our – a number of times and, and when we've had online discussions in our support group is the – and I think this is so interesting um, – Women not uh, telling, uh, and, and again, I think this is more of the before they're actually in fertility treatment with a reproductive endocrinologist, but women not telling their partner during their fertile time, and um, they're doing it because they don't want to lose the spontaneity, and well, they're losing spontaneity, but they don't want to lose the feeling of of, uh, of romance. They also don't want their husbands to feel the pressure. And I think it's also a little bit because they're taking full ownership of the of the couple's infertility, uh, and we could talk some about that. Uh, Deborah Unger has already um, uh, alluded to to that being a fairly common thing. Do you see that in in your research, uh, women taking ownership uh, of the uh, of, of at least the treatment of uh, their infertility? Is that a common thing that you see? This is to Dr. Badera. Oops, I think we uh -huh. may have lost her. Okay. A lack of knowledge affects infertility? Uh, um, I yes. think that's is – that, is that your question? Yes. No, that women take ownership of oh. the infertility in a relationship. I definitely – I don't even think it's their fault. Well, and sometimes now, it is. This is more in my experience. Isn't. My book – right, right, right. No, but they tend to think it's their fault, even if it's not. Right. 
um, yes. because we put, you know, both cultural ownership of reproduction on women. Um, this is, you know, supposedly women's work. And again, it's not in all couples, but I think this is something that you see um, through many patients. So for my book, I interviewed 130 patients and 90 physicians, and almost everyone affirmed that, you know, there's this kind of cultural narrative about how you're supposed to have a child. And it's supposed to take place in love and supposed to be, like, as you mentioned, very romantic. And the farther these couples get from that reality, the more it uh, starts to problematize that narrative. It starts to what? Traumatize? Is that what you said? Yes. Yeah, so the more it starts to problematize that narrative. So then they're not creating a child in the circumstances they wanted to. And again, uh, it just creates like a spiral of guilt and shame um, that not only is the sexual act not uh, fulfilling, not only are they not conceiving, so the end goal is not being realized, but also just the very, uh, it, nothing's turning out the way they imagined. Right, yeah, and then that, and then, and then that goes back to the spiraling that uh, Deborah was talking about, you know, everything and then, and then the feeling of, 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 this is not how it all, this is not, this is not following the cultural narrative. And then that starts mm -hmm. adding pressure and stress. And then that spirals and into uh, perhaps performance anxiety or just lack of desire. One of the things that actually the, uh, the quote at the very beginning of the show uh, alluded to uh, and, and I want to talk some about that. And she said it affected her relationship to feeling feminine and to her gender. And I, I think that uh, perhaps not said quite so eloquently, but I do believe that infertility affects how we feel uh, as a woman or as a man. Uh, Deborah Unger, can you talk some about, uh, do you see that in your practice as well? Um, yes, I, I think that it, it kind of, it, I think often it just creates a cascade of, as Jody was saying, of doubt, of shame, and people are kind of frantically trying to figure out and navigate this unexpected journey that they have to take on. I actually wanted to piggyback, though, on your last question about how it affects women and to mm -hmm. add whether women feel more responsible um, what I tend to see is that women take on the lion's share of the research and <laughs> yeah. searching for answers and for treatment protocols. And I see that happen almost just 100% across the board. So whether it affects their identity as woman or not, this is what they're doing with that, you know, with this, the, the shock and the despair of the reality that they're they're stuck and and I think that the research can be a wonderful way to feel empowered and to try to navigate what to do with you know all the different options but sometimes it does go a little bit too far and it can exacerbate anxiety and make it um, you know a more fearful journey so I work a lot with people on trying to find the right balance and yes, if they feel responsible for what's happening, what is it's their behaviors that can it can kind of trigger more more fears and anxiety, and we want to make sure that they find the right balance. Does that Another, make it does. Another underlying thread that, quite frankly, I wouldn't necessarily have thought about, and that is the impact of 
I think perhaps more infertility or the failure to conceive, the impact that has on on body image, uh, how and I think that's in some ways maybe tied into how we feel about ourselves as women. And and before I, uh, uh, Dr. Madera, I'm going to turn this over to you. But before I say that, let me quickly mention that I I think while I think infertility certainly can affect a woman's feeling of femininity, I think that. Uh, going back to the term that Dr. Madeira used, cultural narrative, I think our cultural narrative it makes it such that many, many men uh, feel like infertility, if it's a male factor, uh, affects um, their masculinity, and I think that we can't uh, we can't over overlook that. But I, I wanted to talk a little bit about. Uh, the impact on body image and how we view ourselves as a body. One woman in the group, uh, Dr. Madeira, said, "I uh, after my diagnosis, I've really let myself go, and I'm very unhappy with how I look right now. I have zero. She's no longer confident, you know, as, as to who she is, uh, and that's reflected in, in and uh, how how she feels about her body. Is this something that you, uh, in your interviews, uh, did you did you touch on the body image part? Yes, absolutely. And what happens with body image is so women start feeling bad about themselves. It can, it can actually create a lack of sexual desire. Um, it can actually lead to problems in the relationship, but it goes farther. So it, um, first of all, you know, it can just lead to feeling unsexy. That's kind of the least worries that people have. Um, when they start to, when it starts to get worse over time, they get uh, increasingly worried, increasingly anxious, increasingly guilty, um, they actually start to feel that they're broken. And um, yes. and, and that yes. the feeling of brokenness actually is what um, really is haunting. So when women have said to me in interviews, for example, I told my husband he could exchange me for a better model. Mm-hmm. I, told, I told him that I was, um, you know, his time was not up under the lemon law. And again, this just reaffirms that women are not products, right? Um, and, and the third thing I'll say about that is when you actually start to get in, in, into infertility treatment and you start to experience side effects from the drugs, um, whether it's hormonal or whether it's uh, actually gaining weight, um, that can even make this worse. Well, it's a good point about we did talk about, uh, with Dr. McAfee uh, at the beginning. And, um, and Dr. McAfee, I really had forgotten to even uh, ask about that, uh, is weight gain uh, associated with, and let's be honest, Weight gain does not affect many women or man, men's uh, feelings of sexiness or worthwhileness, and, and nor should it. Right. However, right. Uh, it is a valid point, especially in our right. culture. Uh, so, is there a um, does the medication, um, any of the meds, um, uh, cause us to gain weight? I mean, typically the IVF medications can cause water retention and there is some weight gain. Um, a few pounds, I mean, nothing so, so um, drastic. And I often tell patients after the procedure, the body will actually hopefully release the water and, and the weight will become uh, back to normal. But uh, yes, we do see some you know, water retention and, and weight gain from the uh, injectable medications from the IVF in particular. Um so for patients that are undergoing, you know, consecutive cycles, it, it can be an additive concern, uh, you know, for the female, of course. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. the man, too. Um, before and, we, and can okay. I add? Yeah, yeah please. Yeah. Well, I was just going to add that a lot of times because they're going through stress, um, 
people might turn to food for comfort. And right. um, we need, to, and, and also there's a fear I tend to see of exercise. I don't want to jar my body right now. I want to stay as still as possible so that things right. work out smoothly. Yep. So I think it's really important to encourage patients to continue to eat healthily and, um, you know, ha- keep a strong and healthy relationship with their eating habits and also to get regular exercise, which can have the added benefit of reducing the stress. So, right. Oh. Yeah. And Dr. McAbee, we don't, uh, from an exercise standpoint, yeah, there is the jostling. It's a really good point. But there's also the the concern about, oh, you know, but women who exercise aren't going to ovulate. That's the, uh, how much of an mm-hmm. issue is that really? Yeah. It's rarely an issue, you know, except obviously in the extreme exerciser or the, uh, the the patient that is food restricting. So the very low BMI patients, so low bath, body mass index, you know, height, uh, weight as a function of height, um, those patients, if the, if it's quite low, it, it can inhibit any sort of spontaneous ovulation. So, um, but that's a that's a longer standing issue, usually yeah. ongoing with the patient for decade, you know, for a long time, not not just showing up in our office with, with that from a short period that's, of time. That's yeah. extreme exercise. And so for the Correct. average person. Uh, average person, is, yeah. yeah. Yep. We More always encourage, you know, healthy weight, healthy eating habits. We actually have a dietitian because we feel it is so important um, that is available to all of our patients to just help with questions or um, advice or dietary, you know, advice and um for those, you know, patients undergoing treatments, and it's actually quite a quite nice, you know, additive. I mean, I, I'm assuming that many practices have, but we definitely think that it's important. Yeah, and we've done a lot on that as well about the impact of diet. Dr. Madera, uh, I'm curious to know if in your interviews you ask how long it takes to get back to a normal sex life once treatment is finished. We we ask this question, not really. We do uh, uh, more formalized surveys frequently of our audience, but this one was more just in passing, so it wasn't very formal. But we heard anything from uh, six months to not until we had a baby or not until we adopted, and then a number of people said never. It never went back. Uh, did you ask this question about uh uh, when, how long it took to get back to normal, whatever normal was for you, uh, normal, normal sexual health? Uh, yes, I did. And actually, you know, sometimes there was um, a new normal. Sometimes they kind of like could not go back to where they were before. But interestingly enough, um, some would not have had it either way because they defined themselves as um, more happy, more satisfied after they become closer they become able to discuss these issues. And perhaps, um, and this is kind of bordering off infertility, but because they can discuss infertility, perhaps they discuss other likes and dislikes that they've had, uh, but they've never shared. So this kind of opens up a watershed at some point, uh, opens up the floodgates, and, and sometimes you really get lots of communication about likes and dislikes and desires, and, um, and actually things get better. But in terms of the time, I think it really depends upon how much um, – how much of an impact the infertility has had upon the relations that a couple has. You know, sometimes it's a profound impact and it might take longer. Um, in terms of length of time, people mention any, anywhere from like a few months to years. Um, you know, and again, the years would be people who are still going through the uh, infertility. Yeah, and, and we've seen that too. And, you know, I'm glad that you mentioned that because I have this later for us to talk about, that uh, it was interesting to me 
that a number of people said came back and said, you know, for us, the impact really wasn't negative. You know, some talked about how they, they, you know, each month, even though the, the odds were very, very slim, there was that spark of hope. And they, they didn't find it as the roller coaster of despair following the spark of hope. They, uh, they really did view it as something. And one woman said, you know, we, we actually, our, uh, our sexual frequency really increased, you know, and it was very enjoyable for both of us. And others talked about how they, the struggle brought them closer. And this is, I think, what you were alluding to, uh, Dr. Madeira, uh, encouraged them to, to seek each other out. Uh, and then Deborah mentioned, uh, Deborah Unger mentioned that, you know, oftentimes it's, it's, uh, encouraging them to get into treatment. And just the, 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 uh, the treatment alone has allowed them to feel closer as a couple. And that has improved. So, improved their sex life. So it's important to realize that it's not, uh, doesn't necessarily, uh, mean that, that you're, you're never going to get back to whatever, whatever normal is. Let me stop for a moment and to remind people that you are listening to Creating a Family, talk about infertility and adoption, and today we're talking about the impact of infertility and infertility treatment on sexual health. Our, one other, I mentioned uh, that our show, as well as our other resources, are brought to you by our partners. Another one of our partners is Manhattan Cryobank. They are dedicated to helping clients have healthy babies by analyzing a client's DNA in combination with the DNA of prospective sperm donors to provide the client with a personalized catalog of safer donor matches. And in addition to their sperm donation services, Manhattan Cryobank also also offers a full range of andrology and and fertility preservation as well. Um, Before, it would be uh, remiss of us not to talk about, so far we've uh, mainly been talking about heterosexual couples Dr. McAvee, I'm, uh, I'm not, uh, I, I struggle to think, I would think that at least with lesbian couples, that some of the same issues would be there, uh, but perhaps I'm wrong. Do you see that the impact of fertility and fertility treatment on sexual health differs uh, with your clients that are LGBTQ? Ooh, that's a good question. Um I think that, I mean, obviously any couple, male to female or female female that are, you know, that are struggling with infertility, there's just, there is a lot of added stress and certainly will impact um, just daily, daily, you know, uh, living, you know, and and obviously that includes um, uh, sexual function. Um, Obviously, when it's a female female couple, we're not dealing with actual performance anxiety issues. Um, but lack it's, of sex, it's like, likely lack more of intimacy. Yeah. Right. So it's more intimacy issues. Um, and I would think the same. So I think of, you know, for a female, female couple struggling, if it's going on to, uh, you know, a handful of months, I'm sure, uh, there's certainly an impact on intimacy issues. Yeah. And I would guess with a male, male couple, there's this obviously not, if they're using treatment, it's through a surrogacy. But I, I would think right. that going back to what Deborah was saying earlier, it's still stressful, and stress can Correct. impact yeah, of intimacy. And so, I of mean, course. so it can affect less from a medical standpoint, obviously, but it can affect. Um, I wanted to come back to some of the. Uh, uh, this I think comes to um, how it affects 
relation how fertility and fertility treatment affects relationships. Some of the things that we've heard from uh, our community is the women feeling uh, resentful that they're doing so much and and he's complaining about having to have sex or you know having the the pressure. Mm-hmm. One, one husband yeah. said, you know, you don't you're not making it special for me, and she was like. Well, what do you think? It's special for me? <laughs> you know, get over yourself. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Deborah, let's talk a little about that. Just a mismatch. Uh, both, fe- uh, well, at least the woman feeling resentful, both are probably in, in both of those con- scenarios, both partners feeling underappreciated and, uh, and resentful. Um, thoughts on how people can uh, get through, get past that, which is a very common feeling. Mm-hmm. That's a great question. I think um, really helping each other, supporting each other through this difficult time and understanding, you know, that they're both experiencing maybe a different set of stressors. And we talked earlier about how a woman might feel the stigma that she's not a woman or a male partner feels that he's inadequate if it's his, his diagnosis that holds him back. Um, I think it really comes down to communicating and um, learning that we di- we all have different stress responses and we need support in different ways when we're going through this stressful journey together. And instead of, you know, having it be, as I talked about earlier, the male partner maybe supporting and playing that strong supportive role and the woman doing all of the research and carrying the stress for the couple, when they can talk about the details together and then equalize that, sharing the responsibility in some other way, that's going to improve the relationship in the end, that it's okay that we both do our share of worrying and it's okay that we both do our share of supporting each other through this. And, and I think that that's where we come together. Couples come together and, and face the journey in a, in, a, in a more equalized way. And that can, that can do all kinds of things for the relationship. So I can't speak enough about how they have to, they have to find maybe a new balance between them as to how they each deal with stress and how they support each other through the journey. And that knowledge alone not only Im- improves sexual intimacy or intimacy in general, which can lead to sexual intimacy, yeah. but it can also be used throughout their life uh, because although yeah. this is a highly mm-hmm. stressful event, there will be others. Um, and, and if they are successful and are able to parent, heaven only knows there'll be a lot of stressful and so events coming up. I wanted to to speak about an issue that came up over and over again, and it's that after treatment is over, sometimes after successful treatment uh, or unsuccessful treatment, unsuccessful treatment or uh, or adoption, uh, that people routinely talked about. I, I'm over it, you know. I'm past. I'm past thinking about it. I'm past uh, the, the 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 stress. We're no longer trying, except every month. I can't help but now know when my fertile time is. I can't help, you know, I, I've noticed my cervical mucus. I notice my feelings. I can feel the ovaries or whatever. I've been so attuned to it for so long. There's no way I'm not going to know. And there's no way that I'm not going to want to have sex. And then if I, if I do have sex, then there's no way that I cannot, on some very small level perhaps, but jump back on that roller coaster of hope and despair. And it's so even well after 
sometimes even when they're thinking they're not even actively wanting to add another child to their family, they still mm-hmm. talk about the emotional roller coaster monthly because they're they're still tuned in. Uh, let me start with you, Dr. Madera, on that one. Um, the uh, even after the fact, trying to un- unconnect yourself with your uh, your body's fertile time and the expectation that maybe just this once it will happen the way it's supposed to. Right. Um, so I think women do get more in touch with their bodies when they're going through fertility treatments. And eventually, you know, we talked about a lot of very negative processes. Eventually, most people, the vast majority, I think, do come out the other side with more self-awareness, um, more bodily awareness. Um, the one thing that's really difficult, I think, is I think sometimes it's hard to get faith back in, in your cycle. Um, it's hard to know what's going to happen. Uh, in my own case, uh, I'll just speak personally for a second. We had triplets when I was uh, 30. Um, I did not ovulate beforehand because I had had a miscarriage. And I didn't know if I had the triplet when I had the triplets, whether the clock would be reset, uh, what, what my body would do. So I think there's this period of like waiting. Um, and you can see, you know, just what happens. And I think that period of waiting is often very painful. But then if things do turn out uh, well, if they resume, if, if, if things start up as they can, um, what's really interesting is there's this almost very common uh, story out there about women who are able to conceive naturally, um, particularly if they've had unexplained infertility, um, either after going through infertility treatments and thinking that they would not be successful or conceiving through infertility. So you do see that. Um, that, that you do, but, of, I, but I'm always very cautious because the reality is that that's uh, there's, that's the exception, not the rule. And yes. we certainly see yes. it in the world of adoption, where people treat the idea of adoption as as a some type of of, of infertility elixir. You know that oh, yes. just adopt and you're going to get pregnant. Well, in fact, there's been some research on that, and and no, you're not more likely. I mean, yes, even in uh, uh, typical infertility patients, there is a small percent chance, but there's a chance, and so. The statistics yes. would bear out that that. So I'm, I'm always just a little cautious that people uh, yes. don't. You know, let me ask you this. Uh, we didn't. It didn't necessarily come up in recent discussions, but I certainly have heard this talked about, uh, uh, not infrequently. Uh, although I, I still think it's probably not terribly common, and that is women choosing to either have their tubes tied or have their or uh, have their husbands go through a vasectomy even though they're infertile, but feeling that it is the only way they know of to stop this, the the, the monthly expectation and, and just wanting mm-hmm. to get back to normal and, and feeling like this mm-hmm. is the only way. Uh, thoughts on this, Deborah Unger? Oh, um, I, I haven't seen that. That's a, that's a very, that when you share that, I mean, a rush of pain came to me to think that a couple goes through everything they've been through and that they haven't been able to come through that um, supporting each other and having worked through that, the shame and the grief cycles that they're going through. And it just made me think, wow, those couples Mm -hmm. probably would benefit from honestly going to counseling. I know that I'm biased as a mental health practitioner but when you come through it at the other end and you feel this trauma, these unresolved feelings of grief and fear and angst, um, I think it is. It, we are at a place where 
that the couple should maybe talk about how can we find peace in this journey and how do we resolve these unresolved feelings of grief and the and really I'm thinking of it as sort of an ongoing it's like a PTSD response right that you're still haunted by the the, the trauma that you went through and um, and I would I would turn first to a counselor to talk about the leftover and unresolved feelings before resorting to a medical intervention at that later stage. Uh, Dr. Madera, any final thoughts on, uh, you'll get the last word, any final thoughts in your uh, research on uh, methods that people have used, including uh, sterilization, uh, to help them cope after they no longer want to get pregnant uh, with the, uh, or are not actively seeking to get pregnant, with the, the monthly hope despair cycle? Um, yes, I, I do think, um, now actually I have seen that many of the women I spoke with said that after they were done trying, they would certainly obtain procedures or take permanent steps um, so that they wouldn't be surprised. They felt for some reason it was unbearably painful to be surprised after years of trying, which is kind of the opposite of what you would expect to hear. Um, but they just wanted that, I, I don't like this term generally, but closure um, of knowing that it was very, very unlikely to happen. Um, so, so I yeah. think that that can be a a, a grab, a, a, something that they have to grapple with. Uh, but it's a major of reestablishing control over their fertility when they've yeah. lacked control over their fertility for so long. Um, and certainly after they are done having a family, that they are very eager to take control again because it's been denied to them. Yep, I think you're. I think you're, you're on to something very much. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Jody Madera, Dr. Beth McAvee, and Deborah Unger for being with us today to talk about the impact of, of uh, fertility and infertility and its treatment on sexual health. 